0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. I am so excited to be able to share with you guys today. Um, You may notice we don't have an unfamiliar face up here. You're going to see four of us that you guys know and are familiar with. and, And it's just such a neat opportunity that we get to pour into each other as a body. We get to just hear how the Lord has worked in each of our lives, um, and just share that with you guys. So it's really exciting. Um, Philippians, as I've been praying through what we were going to be doing for this, the Lord just kept putting Philippians on my heart. Um, it's a book that is just so dear to me. Um, it's one of the first books that I remember going through. Once I started attending Calvary Chapel, we had our, our college girls group, and it was one of the first ones that we went through chapter by chapter together, um, and so it's always just been really dear to my heart, and then when we were in McKinney, Justin and I, it was one of the first ones that we did with, with the middle school girls and the high school girls there that would meet in our house in our tiny little 700 square foot apartment with eight middle school girls, and it was crazy and wonderful, And um, but this book has just been so good, and it's, it's so short, but it's so impactful, um, and it's so deep, and it has such a depth and richness in theology. So I'm really excited to share with you guys. Um, it is a practical example and an encouragement on right Christian experience in the outworking, whatever our circumstances may be, of the life, nature, and mind of Christ living in us. So I'm excited to share with you guys um, to go chapter by chapter. Each of us is going to be taking one chapter from Philippians. There's four chapters um, and just going through it and studying with you guys. So with that, I want to go ahead and let's open up either in your Bibles or in the the Bible journals that you guys got. Um, Go ahead and open up to the first chapter, and we're going to read it together, and then we'll we'll dig in a little bit more. So Philippians chapter 1 starts out like this. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel— So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer, in the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet what I choose I cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all progress of joy and faith, of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, God, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we could just stop there and we would be good. It's just so so rich. God, I pray that you would just um, use me to say what you would have me to say. God, I pray that our hearts would be be open to what you want to show us today. God, we just give this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've ever been with us on a Sunday or a Wednesday, um, you know that whenever we read a new book, we, we need to have context. So, We need to familiarize ourselves with the background, the author, the audience, um, the social context, everything going on, so that we can understand more fully what we are reading. So to do that, let's go ahead and look at the first verse. Uh, It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So in just the first verse, we see two of the main things we're looking for. We see our author and the audience both. So our author um, is Paul. Philippians is a letter written by Paul along with Timothy to the church in Philippi. And it's one of four letters that he wrote while he was in prison, the others being Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Traditionally, it's believed to have been written uh, in or around the year 62 AD while he was awaiting the final verdict regarding his trial in Rome. There's some debate exactly where he was imprisoned, but most believe that it was while he was actually in Rome. Um, But regardless of location, you know, we see that he was under house arrest and he was under the command of the imperial guard or the praetorian. So this would mean that he was an important prisoner of Caesar himself. So he had his royal guard with him at all times. Um, He would have a guard chained to him day and night, never alone. So while he did have the freedom not to be in an actual prison, he didn't have the freedom to go and be as he pleased. And we see this imprisonment mentioned all throughout the book of Philippians. So now that we know our author, we're going to look next at the audience, who we addressed this letter to. As the name Philippians suggests, because we have the benefit of of having everything named in our Bible, we've got all the titles, and so we know it's to the church in Philippi, because it's Philippians. It was written to the church in Philippi, and this church in Philippi was near and dear to Paul's heart, and we see that throughout the book. And we get a little insight of Paul's history with the church and the people in it from the book of Acts specifically chapter 16. So the Lord had been speaking to Paul through a vision, um, and he goes on his second missionary journey to Macedonia, and they arrive in Philippi. The city did not have that many that believed in God. Um, Each city needed to have 10 Jewish men in order for there to be a synagogue in each city, and this city didn't even have that. Um, So instead of finding a synagogue like he did in many of the cities he went to, he actually went down to the river where there was a group of women that would pray each each Sabbath. And so he arrived there, and he met Lydia. She was a wealthy businesswoman who sold purple dye, and she became the first recorded convert to Christianity in Europe. Also in Philippi, um, they came across this slave girl, and she would follow them around. She had a spirit of divination, um, and so her owners, her masters, would make a profit from her from fortune-telling. So she was following Paul and Silas around the whole city. They're walking around and, and talking to the believers there and, and growing the church. And, and she was following the whole time, just saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And after several days of this, it was, it was kind of becoming a hindrance. And so um, Paul turned around and he commanded the Spirit to come out of her. And that very moment, it did. Um, and then her masters were were... Furious, they'd lost their way of, of making a profit. and so they seized Paul and Silas and they threw them in jail. And then there's a story that we hear and love so much of uh, Paul and Silas in jail. They're in prison. It's the middle of the night, they're singing praises to the Lord. and while they're making all this noise and praising the Lord, this giant earthquake comes and it breaks open all the cells, it breaks the chains and they're freed. And then the jailer thinking that his life was on the line now that these prisoners had escaped. Goes to kill himself, but instead Paul says, No, 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 wait, we're all here. Which, just a side note, it totally makes sense that Paul and Silas would stay there, but all the other prisoners stayed. They had been hearing Paul and Silas praising the Lord all night long, hearing their testimony, hearing what he had been doing, what the Lord was working. And so when those chains were broken, they didn't go anywhere either. Even in the prison cell there, not only with the jailer did they have an effect, but with all those prisoners that stayed to see what the Lord was doing through these crazy guys singing praises. So they're freed, and the jailer and his household um, came to Christ, became believers. And then Paul and Silas spent their remaining time in Philippi with Lydia's household, encouraging this little baby church. So Paul had this history with the church in Philippi. And this letter unlike many that paul wrote he didn't write it to correct doctrine he didn't write it to correct behavior it has a gentle encouraging exhortation this tone of just kindness towards them paul wrote to thank them for their support to encourage them to see rightly the lord's working in their own lives as well as his while he was in prison if you've read the book of philippians before or heard a study teach or taught on it you may have heard that Philippians is all about joy. And while it's true, the book is full of joy. There are some 14 references to joy or rejoicing throughout the whole book. But I would argue that the main focus of the book is not simply joy, but the source of joy and the purpose of that joy. While joy is referenced, I'm sorry, some 19 times, not 14, even more than that. 19 times, Jesus is referenced some 40 times. Dave Vernon McGee states that he is the center of the epistle. He is the one who is the very source of joy. Therefore, the emphasis should be put upon him rather than upon the joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Without rightly seeing Jesus Christ in all his glory for who he is, it just becomes a work of our flesh. It becomes something that we strive to maintain in those impossible situations, and we're going to fail because we're just looking for the fruit instead of who produces that fruit in our lives. Rather, joy is a result of fixing our gaze upon Jesus and walking forward no matter what we we may go through, and its purpose and end is to bring him glory. So it's with this mindset that Paul writes what I consider to be the key verse of chapter 1. So go ahead and look at verse 27. So Philippians 1.27 says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul writes that their conduct would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's easy for us to take that and twist it in our minds and make it something that is not ever meant to be. It's easier for us to see that and think that we have to make ourselves worthy. We have to be worthy of that gospel um, and do that work in our own selves. Paul's not saying that in any way. He's not telling you to become worthy. He's telling us, um, let's see, well, he said that work is finished. Um, when Jesus uttered, te die with his last breath, we can't add to our salvation We can't be good enough. We can't do the right things and and earn it. The work is done. Guys, if you've confessed with our mouth that we believe Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we're already saved. That work is done. You don't have to make yourself worthy of his gospel. No, when Paul says to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel, he's saying that we're to live like one who's already been made worthy he's saying that our character and our lives should clearly display him. They should display his work and bring him glory. And Paul exemplifies this with his own life and in his encouragement to the church in Philippi. In this letter that he writes, he sets an example for us with his prayer for the church, his perspective while imprisoned, and in his display of unity with other believers. So Justin always tries to have like your you know, your three Ps or whatever it is, I'm not that fancy. So I started with um, perspective um, or prayer, perspective, and then unity. So close, but not quite there. (laughs) So the first thing that we see um, in Paul's example, we see that Paul prayed for the church there. His conduct was worthy of the gospel in his prayer for the church in Philippi. Not only do we see what he prayed, but we also see how he prayed. He prayed confidently, and then also intimately for this church. He knew that even though he was in prison and he couldn't minister to them in person and physically serve them, he knew that he could minister and build up the church through prayer. You know, we so often see prayer as this last resort kind of thing. We tell somebody, you know, somebody who's going through something in their life and we say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll pray for you. And that's kind of our way to get out of it if we don't know what else to do or... um, or you feel like there's no other option. You can't bring them a meal, you can't, whatever the situation may be, you feel like your only, only other thing is to say, oh, I'll just pray for you. Um, and that should never be our mindset. We need to correct that way of thinking. We forget the power that there is in prayer. We forget that the effective, per- fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. See, Paul knew that the Lord was the one who began the work in Philippi. He knew that the Lord would be the one who could continue it. In you know, verse 6, he says, Being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He knew that God was doing the work. He knew that he was going to continue to do that work. And he in prison got to come alongside them, even from far away. He got to come alongside and be with them in that process through prayer building them up and serving them. He got to pray for them from such a place of deep fellowship as partakers of them with that grace. You know, there's such a bond that's formed when we are part of the body of Christ. He takes people from all different kinds of backgrounds, different personalities, um, different ideas, different skills. He takes all of us and knits us together into one body, working together. You know, the church in Philippi, it started with a jailer. It started with... A businesswoman. It started with a slave girl. And all of these are people who would never have anything to do with Paul, who was an ex-Pharisee. He took people from all different backgrounds and just put them together. And there's that unity, that oneness that they had in Christ, because they have that in common. So as he prays in verse 9, he prays that their love would abound, that they would be able to approve the things that are excellent. They would be sincere without offense, until the day of Christ. Now, all these are fruits, just like joy. They're worked into our lives through Jesus Christ, through him, and for his praise and his glory. And we can't make these fruits grow in our lives any more than we can make joy happen on our own. It may work for a little while, but eventually it's going to be evident that it's just us trying to stick something up there and hope it stays. We need to look to the source of that fruit. John 15 says that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Fruit comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and living presently in him. It's a product of our relationship with him. You know, we need to be women of the word daily. We need to be praying. We need to be seeking him. Um, and I don't mean, you know, just getting your little five-minute devotional and reading what somebody else has to say about the Word, those are great. Those have their place. Um, and sometimes if you just need that quick refresher, yeah, absolutely, pull that thing out. But you need to be in the Word. You need to open up your Bible, whether it's, it's the physical copy or on your phone, or on your app, whatever it is, you guys need to be in the Word. There's no replacement for that. Um, you can hear what somebody else has to say about it. You can hear somebody else's experience. You can hear anything else. But, but when you're in the Word, there's such a difference. You get to hear the Lord speaking to your heart. You get to hear His voice. And that's what gets you through those days when, you know, I've been in a season of having small kids for the last seven years now. Um, and sometimes you don't get that much time. You just have your little time in the morning. like, okay, I just have to get one verse in there. While somebody's running around and shooting you with a Nerf gun, you have no idea what your day is going to look like. And so even if it's just that little time just get in the word, get that one verse to hang on to, hear his voice. So that as he's speaking to you through the day, you recognize his voice. You know, there's been so many times where I get that one little verse in the morning. I'm like, I have no idea what this means. God, please use this. And then later in the day, or even the next day, he brings it back to remembrance and he pulls that out. But unless you're in the word, unless you're hearing his voice, you're not going to recognize him. You're not going to know your shepherd's voice. And so we need to be women who are in the word, so even if it's a verse, if it's a whole chapter, whatever it can be, be in the word. You know, some seasons are harder than others. Some feel like they'll never end. Some are easier than others, and you have hours on ours. But be in the word. You know, as we spend time with the Lord daily, surrendering to him as living sacrifices, he works in us and he works through us. When we're pressing into him, he grows our love for the people around us, just as Paul writes. When we're pressing into him, he gives us wisdom and discernment about his will in our lives. When we're pressing into him, he enables us to live lives that are sincere without offense. The word Paul uses here for sincere means without wax. And this is just the coolest little thing that always stands out to me when I read this. So in Paul's day, there was this, a big market for um, pottery and sculptures and things like that. Um, But many dishonest vendors would have a broken piece, and they would try to disguise that and sell it and pass it off as as perfect and and unflawed. And so what they would do is they would take that little crack and they would fill it in with wax, and they would make it indistinguishable and then pass it off and say, oh, this is good, this is great, this is flawless, and, and charge this exorbitant price for it as they would for something that was perfect. But the person would take it home, they would buy it, set it up somewhere special, and the next hot day that would come, the sun would hit it, that wax would start to melt, and it would leave that crack visible and the piece flawed and worthless. You know, Paul says to be sincere, to be without wax. He's saying be genuine, be real and sincere. Don't try to grow that fruit on your own. Don't pretend that your life is something that it's not. Don't pretend that you have love for your neighbor, but then act in a way that tears them down. Live sincere and without offense. When Paul says we should be be living sincerely and without offense, he's not saying that you'll never offend somebody. I think it's impossible to live your life making everybody happy. Um, Even the kindest person is going to offend somebody in some way. You know, without offense means blameless. Maybe a better translation there. Because the Christian life, if we're living it, preaching the word of God will not be without offense to somebody. Remember that even people were offended at Paul and his preaching. But we are to be blameless. Were to be sincere and without offense, blameless. Paul moves on from his prayer to encourage the believers about his imprisonment. You know, it'd be easy for his friends to look at his current situation. They had seen him back when he was in prison in Philippi. They'd seen the work that God had done. They'd seen him break those prison chains open and, and free him and just work mightily that way. So it'd be easy for them to look at his situation and say, okay, why is God not working in that same way? Why is he not freeing him now? What is he doing? You know, Paul knew that he was called to Rome. He knew that he was going to minister to those people. And so it would be easier for them to look at the situation and say, why is God not working? But Paul encourages them. And he says, I want you to know that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Because he was chained to a guard day in and day out, he was imprisoned. and um, The whole palace guard came to know that he was there because of Christ. He had hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours for two whole years to share Jesus with them, and it made an impact. Not only did it impact the guards, but it also brought boldness to other believers to speak the word without fear. His friends needed to have the right perspective. They needed to know that God doesn't always work the same way. He works differently. He sees the bigger picture. He knows what's going on, he knows what each situation needs. Just as Paul's release in Philippi brought glory to God and helped spread the gospel, so did his imprisonment in Rome. You know, it's so easy for us to get discouraged the same way. We see God come through in a situation. We see him move, and we're like, yeah, that was so awesome. Okay, and then we come to this situation again or a similar situation. We're like, okay, God, we're ready. Come on, I know you're going to do it. And then he has a different plan. And we're left there just like, oh, okay. Are you there? Like, what are you doing? This is what we're doing. This is how you work, remember? Um, and we think, God, what are you doing? Why haven't you fixed this? And we have a hard time seeing past the current situation. But we need to look up and we need to see him. We need to remember that he who began a good work in us will complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. It may not be comfortable, it may be awful, it may not be what we would choose. You know, even Paul, as he's teaching here and writing to them, um, he says that to live was Christ, but to die would be gain. He was hard-pressed between the two, desiring to depart and be with Christ, which was far better than his current suffering. He saw that the Lord was working. He knew that he was working. He knew that he needed to remain where he was. He knew that the Lord was working in his prison. He knew that being there was for their progress and joy and faith. He saw what the Lord was doing, but it was still hard. You know, you may feel trapped where you are today. It could be a season of life. It could be that you have small kids at home and you feel like you're just trying to get through. It could be a hard situation at work with a family member, whatever it is. You know, we all have those things where you feel trapped in that situation. Can I encourage you guys to press into the Lord? Press into him. Trust that even in this, he's working we may not see what he's doing. We may be tempted just to brace ourselves and get through it, try to get to the end, make it through. And that's okay, because sometimes it is hard. A lot of times it is really hard, but we have to have that perspective in the meantime. It may even seem better at the time just to leave it all behind, to die and to go be with him, as Paul says here, that he's hard pressed between the two. But friends, he's still working. He's still working all things together for good and for his glory, even in the prison. He still works in prison cells, sometimes through an earthquake like he did in Philippi. Sometimes it's just sitting there in it with us, but he is working. Press into him and ask him to give you his perspective to help you to look to him instead of the situation, and he'll meet you there. And it may look differently than you planned. It may look way harder than you've ever thought imaginable. But he's with you in it, and he is working. And as we do this individually, as we are letting our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, as we're pressing in in prayer, as we're having his perspective, then we see the last thing that Paul talks about, and we see that true unity of Christ. Verse 27 again, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You know, it's as we follow the Lord and as we let our conduct be worthy of the gospel, we press into him and we let him lead us and lead our lives entirely. As we do this as individuals, that impacts the whole body of Christ. You know, just like we saw before, he takes all of us and puts us together and knits us together to grow each other, to press into him together, to encourage one another. You know, the Philippians were um, encouraging Paul while he was in prison as well. This letter he wrote as a response to them, um, sending support to him and encouragement to him. You know, we get to be the body together. Because even though we're individuals, We're all seeking the same thing. You know, that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. That Christ takes the Pauls, the Lydia's, the jailers, you know, all of us, and he brings us together unified in him. And it's all because of his blood, for the sake of his glory being seen, for the gospel being shared through our lives lived out. And so we'll see this continue today as we go through the rest of the book of Philippians. You know, we see the joy, we see unity and we see all these themes that will come up and the focus is on Jesus. The focus is on him and on his gospel.